Good morning, church. Uh, I have, my name's Tony, as Benji said, and I have the, the uh, privilege of reading our passage this morning. Before I do, I, I'm hoping you guys will pray with me real quick. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that as we read your word and as Benji comes to teach, your Holy Spirit would move in us individually and corporately. God, would you soften our hearts and ready our minds to hear your voice this morning? Amen. So as Benji said, we're in Colossians 3. Our passage is Colossians 3, 1 through 17. And would you listen to God's word? Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Thank you, Tony. Again, my name is Benji. I serve as one of the pastors here. If you are new or visiting, welcome. Glad you are a part of what we're doing here today. Um, You also need to know you're dropping into the middle of some things. We are in the very middle of our investigation of this letter, this book known as Colossians, which was a letter written from the Apostle Paul to the church in the ancient city of Colossae. Last week, we were treated to an excellent sermon from Mandy. Truly, if you missed it, go back, watch the YouTube, get to the sermon, download a podcast, whatever you need to do. It was fantastic. And she helped us to better understand the context of pressure that was facing the Christians in Colossae. Pressures toward believing that faith in Jesus was not enough for salvation without also supplementing with some of their own works or rituals or practices or traditions. And so she brought us through to the end of chapter 2, which Paul ended with these words. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, 
are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So at the end of chapter 2, that's how Paul ends it. And as my dear friend Patty reminded us in home group this week, Colossians 3 comes after Colossians 2, as so often happens. So when our passage today begins with the word, therefore, it sets up the readers, both then and now, to expect Paul to offer insight on this, on what will actually assist the Colossians in living a life that restrains sensual indulgence. But rather than get to the list of do's and don'ts that most of our hearts are wired to expect immediately, Paul begins in a more exalted place. And he talks about what it means to be raised with Christ. Raised with Christ. Paul includes two commands in the first two verses of Colossians 3. He says, set your hearts on things above and set your minds on things above. Now, these phrases are prone to being misunderstood because in our culture, when we talk about setting your mind to something or setting your heart on something, we actually mean something different than what Paul was getting at here. So see, Paul is not calling the Colossians to set new goals for themselves and set their minds to achieving those goals. Nor is he calling them to follow their hearts, set your hearts on whatever your passion is and pursue it. No, what he's doing is he's calling them to make the realities of heaven the consuming preoccupation of their lives. Now, to be clear, when Paul speaks of setting their hearts and minds on things above, he isn't expecting the Colossian Christians to literally stand around staring into the sky. He's using a figure of speech, not unlike when you come across a news story that refers to Washington or Sacramento, but actually simply means to represent government in general. Paul says, set your mind on things above, and his original readers would have thought, oh, that means heaven. But helpfully, both for them and for us, Paul goes on, and he's a little more specific even about which aspect of heaven he wants them to focus on. So he says at the end of verse 1, would you look at it? Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So with the inclusion of this prepositional phrase, Paul highlights a particular aspect of Jesus' glory for the Colossians to fixate upon, and that is his role as Redeemer. Now, again, this may not be immediately clear to us. We might not instantly see the significance of this turn of phrase. But for Jesus to be seated at the right hand of God is a claim that Jesus' work had reached its completion, his work of redemption. So the author of the letter to the Hebrews makes much of this. So, for example, we see in Hebrews 1, 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Or in Hebrews 10, 12, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Or in Hebrews 12, verse 2, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This powerful metaphor makes clear that sitting at the right hand of God, it signaled that Jesus's substitutionary work of redemption, atonement, and forgiveness was finished and sufficient. 
So in the opening verse of Colossians 3, Paul calls the Colossians to set their minds on things above, to set their hearts on things above. And now he could have described Jesus in any number of ways. He had no shortage of options, but he draws attention to Jesus as the one who is seated at the right hand of God. So how does this exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of God matter to the Christians in Colossae? Well, look again at what Paul says about their lives in connection to Jesus. Verse 3, he says, your old life died. Verse 1, they were raised to life with Christ. Verse 3, their new life is securely hidden with Christ. Verse 4, the fullness of their new life will be brought to fulfillment as Jesus' glorious return becomes evident. It is their vital connection to Jesus and their new life in him that Paul calls his readers to set their minds and their hearts on. Paul calls the Colossian Christians to marinate in their identity in Christ, to allow what God has declared true about them to shape the way that they move through the world, which means naturally that this is the part where we talk about the Lion King. In the 1994 classic Disney movie, we follow the story of Simba, the young cub who just can't wait to be king, right? Has, you've seen this, right? I mean... So after Simba's father, Mufasa, is killed, Simba's evil uncle, Scar, convinces Simba that it was his fault. So he runs away to live the Hakuna Matata life with Timon and Pumbaa in the jungle, right? But one day, one day, he encounters Rafiki, the baboon, and he leads Simba to this mysterious moment in which the young lion looks up into the sky and sees Mufasa speaking to him from the heavens in radiant clouds. Symbolism much? Yes. Mufasa tells Simba, remember who you are. You are my son and the one true king. Remember who you are. In similar manner, directly on the heels of his discussion about legalism that could threaten their faith, and lead them to live out of something other than what heaven declares true about them, Paul directs the collective gaze of the Colossians to what is above. And he says, in effect, remember who you are. I like to imagine that the Apostle Paul sounds like James Earl Jones. I think that this understanding of the power of identity is just as important for us today as it ever was for the original Colossian Christians that Paul wrote to. So a couple of years ago, I spent nine months in a spiritual formation Bible study called Theodicy. It was really excellent for many reasons, and one of the metaphors that we unpacked and that has really stuck with me is the idea of audio tracks. And the idea is this, that we each have audio tracks that play in our minds, usually in ways we are not entirely aware of. And so these typically unexamined messages speak oughts and shoulds over our lives, often threaten our sense of peace. They can be messages we've absorbed from mentors or friends or family or even just the broader culture about who we are, who we really ought to be, and how we simply don't measure up. And each of them has the potential not only to distract, but actually to immobilize us in our Christian life. So in my life, I've seen the ways that these audio tracks can keep me from even hearing, let alone believing what is true. 
And I wish I could say that just knowing that they're playing in my mind is enough to disempower them, but that's simply not the case. If I'm not careful and intentional to identify the audio tracks and then replace them with what God says is true about me, I will be overrun by their power. Now, in the opening verses of Colossians 3, Paul turns up the volume on the truths of heaven in order to drown out the audio tracks that threaten the faith of the Christians in Colossae. So in response to the whisper that their salvation depends on their works, Paul shouts that Christ completed the work and is now seated at the right hand of God. In response to the whisper that in an uncertain world, they should probably hedge their bets and give their allegiances to multiple gods, Paul shouts that their lives are hidden and secure in Christ. In response to the whisper that they will never escape their old lives, Paul shouts that their old life died with Christ. And in response to the whisper that this life is an endless road with no reward, Paul shouts that they will appear in glory when Christ returns. Paul begins Colossians 3 with a power-packed four verses because he knows that only by fixing their minds and their hearts on what is true above will they remind themselves of what's true and can be true below. And only by such fixation can they hope to drown out the clamor of the lies that surround them. So we're going to move on in a moment to Paul's specific challenges and encouragements for the Christian life. But we have to see that the descriptions of what is true in heaven precede the prescriptions for what is possible on earth. Friends, only when we can start to grasp and somehow get our hearts to dare to believe the stunning truths of our identity in Christ, only then can we begin to see the following verses, not as heavy burdens to bear, but as invitations to live in alignment with that identity. But before we get into those verses, let's revisit the Pride Lands just really quickly. Because the flow of the rest of this passage actually parallels Simba's story. You probably remember, after that brief encounter with Mufasa, radiant, in the clouds, well, that was a turning point for Simba. His life looked completely different. It was a moment of reminder, of reorientation, of reset, that changed the entire trajectory and empowered him to live a completely different story. And similarly, after drawing their eyes upwards, Paul invites the Colossian Christians into a different story too. He says, those who have been raised with Christ are ruthless with sin. So in verses 5 through 10, Paul describes a spirit-empowered life as one that is free from the sinful indulgence that used to come naturally and easily. But notice not one that is free from the presence of sin. The difference matters. Paul doesn't somehow imagine a brand new life that is now magically free from sin. If he did, then his commands to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, and also rid yourselves of all such things as these, well, those commands would make no sense. No, Paul now envisions a life so transformed by the virtue of Christ's work, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, that for once... Finally, it is actually possible to put to death that which they previously were unable to resist. So verses 5 through 10 form what is commonly referred to as a vice list. It's a representative but not exhaustive list of sins. And if we can be honest for a moment, in a room this size, there will be a variety of reactions to lists like these. Maybe you felt some reaction when Tony read them. 
Some of us saw a particular sin listed there and immediately thought of that person in our life, perhaps in the room, who hasn't yet put that thing to death, maybe doesn't even seem to want to. Still others of us noticed something on this list that we haven't yet put to death, and we felt shame. And we're tempted to believe that in a lie that everyone else in this church has their stuff together and we alone have things in our lives we would never share in home group. If you find yourself in either of those places this morning, I want to draw our attention to two features of this passage. First, it's inclusivity. And second, it's inclusivity. Let me see if I can explain what I mean. Some of us imagine more often than not that the primary metaphor for the Bible's ethical and moral commands is like a window. That when we run across things like what we find in Colossians 3, it is for us to sit on one side of the window and look through to a world that struggles with such things and often and easily sit in judgment of it. But in this passage, we need to see it's more like Paul is installing full-length mirrors in the house of God. Mirrors in which everyone can see every part of themselves reflected. And this mirror here in Colossians 3 reveals a widely inclusive range of sins, doesn't it? Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, idolatry, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, dishonesty, divisiveness, and sectarianism. And notice that for Paul, there is no distinction between the sins listed in verse 5 and those that come in verses 8 through 11. So when Paul instructs in verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, and then adds in verse 8, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. It's clear that he's treating these things equally. Imagine I got a text from Greta that said, on your way home from Isaac's soccer practice, do not forget to pick up the pizza for dinner, and also we need paper plates. It would be foolish for me to conclude it's important to get the pizza, but wouldn't matter if I got the plates. Or that as long as I brought home both the pizza and the plates, it would be okay if I didn't actually bring Isaac home. (laughs) Now, that might seem like a pedestrian example, but I have had far too many conversations in which I hear someone focus on the so-called major sin of others while making excuses for the sin in their own lives. And those are just the conversations that take place in my own heart in an attempt to look through the window onto the sin of others rather than take seriously what the mirror of God's word reveals to me. So to be clear, a list which features sexual immorality also refuses to let off the hook the person who speaks slander. We cannot indulge in anger or greed while hoping that the person striving imperfectly to put to death their lust will uniquely experience the conviction of the Spirit and the judgment of God. Friends, to put a really fine point on it, my own life is held up to scrutiny by these verses. And when I look into the mirror of God's word here in Colossians 3, I recognize ways in which I have succumbed, even this week, to things that are not befitting of my identity in Christ. Things like anger, unkind language, and evil desires. And our passage reminds me to be who I already am by continuing to put to death who I no longer have to be. The power of sin that once enslaved me has been broken, and I no longer have to serve a defeated master, and neither does anyone who has been raised with Christ. Now, 
A word to those who hear in this vice list a word of condemnation. It's important to bear in mind in this discussion of sin that Paul is still addressing those who have been raised with Christ. The sin he calls out doesn't actually lead him to doubt their status within the kingdom of God. Paul isn't saying, prove you belong to Christ by the way you live. He's saying, live your life as who you already are in the eyes of heaven. The distinction is critical. Because even as he talks about the battles still to be waged against the sin in their lives, notice the inclusive language he uses to describe the Colossians. Verse 1, he says, you have been raised with Christ. Verse 3, your lives are now hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4, you will appear with Christ in glory. In verses 9 and 10, he tells them, you have taken off your old self. You've been given a new self. And then in beautiful language, in verse 12, he calls them chosen, holy, and dearly loved. It's almost as though Paul is going out of his way to say to these dear ones, even with your sins and your struggles, you still belong here. You still belong to a God who delights in you, and you still belong to one another, so live as though it's true. Now, make no mistake, there is a day coming in which not only the power, but also the very presence of sin will be eradicated. When Jesus returns in glory and power, sin itself will be judged, and the world that results will be free from sin, a world in which there will no longer be any more death or mourning or crying or pain. But until that day, God patiently and lovingly delights in his children, even as we stumble, even as we fall short, even as we continue to put on dirty clothes we didn't realize we no longer have to wear. Fam, if you are in Christ, your salvation is secure and hidden in heaven with the resurrected one seated at the right hand of God. So when you find yourself wandering in the jungle of sin, remember who you are. Raised with Christ, chosen, holy, dearly loved, and freed to put to death the various things that do not fit that heavenly identity. But in the end of our passage, we're reminded that our heavenly identity does more than simply allow us to cut off sin. It actually allows us to be robed in splendor. So Trunk or Treat was yesterday. It was so much fun. My quads hurt from doing this with many of your children. And, but it was great. My son was here, and um, he had a soccer game after. And so he was here with his soccer uniform on under his Black Panther costume. And so he was having a great time being Black Panther. But it would not have been appropriate for him to show up to his soccer game still as Black Panther. Because it was not the appropriate outfit for that particular setting. He needed to strip that off because it didn't fit. And that's what Paul is saying to the Colossians here. He says, yes, you strip off one thing. And in verse 9, he introduces this metaphor of clothing. He says, you have taken off your old self with its practices. But then he's going to go on, after telling the Colossians what not to wear, to offer them a different wardrobe, more befitting their identity in Christ. Verses 12 through 17 are so beautifully composed. I feel like I can't do anything better than to simply reread them. Would you hear them again? Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. 
And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In these verses, Paul holds out a profoundly beautiful invitation into a new way of life together, one that is just as tied to the realities of heaven as anything we find in verses 5 through 11. So when the Bible tells the story of humanity, it is a story that begins in glorious possibility and dignity. As the creator God, out of the overflow of his love, creates humans in his own image, and he gives them charge of his creation. Now when the story quickly goes awry, we see that our original parents opt to serve the God of self rather than the God of love who delighted in them. And with that choice... All of God's very good creation experienced both immediate and ongoing brokenness. And yet right away, God revealed himself as a loving redeemer who steps into such brokenness. So when the man and the woman were grasping at fig leaves in a vain attempt to cover their shame, the author of Genesis tells us the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And with that act of gentle mercy... God thundered definitively that his grace clothes and covers the undeserving. We see this beautiful theme on display elsewhere in scripture. So King David, when he writes Psalm 30 and reflects on crying out to the Lord for mercy, crying out in his distress, he ends the psalm with these joyful words. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. That my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. The prophet Isaiah declares, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And Paul himself, in writing to the churches in Galatia, says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. The God of the Bible clothes the undeserving in garments that only he can give. And here in Colossians 3, Paul issues an invitation to the Colossian Christians to together take hold of their new wardrobe and live out of their identity as the beloved of God. So this week in home group, we were talking about this passage and reminded ourselves yet again that this is a letter written to a church, to a collection of God's children. And we considered this question, what would it feel like to be a part of a church that is regularly and routinely marked by these things? By traits like compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, by perseverance and forgiveness, by love and unity, by peace and thankfulness. A community saturated in the word of God for mutual encouragement and faithfulness, and for the glory of Jesus Christ. And I want to pose that same question to us here this morning. What would it be like if that is the kind of church community we were committed together to creating, not because we have the power in and of ourselves, because that is what it means to live out what God has spoken is already true about us. 
one of our home group members this week said, I think it sounds compelling, like it would hard not to be swept up into it. Friends, perhaps this discussion leaves you feeling disappointed in the capital C church and this church, more freshly aware of our shortcomings. But I want to ask, despite our imperfections, could we together embrace our collective identity in Christ in such a way that the world would be compelled to want to know the God who alone forms and clothes such communities? That those stuck in slavery to sin would encounter a vibrant people marked by the possibilities of resurrected life. That those who believe themselves only to be viewed through the window of judgment would be surprised to find a compassionate people who have been humbled and grateful for the grace that they've received when they've encountered their own lives reflected in the word of God. That those using fig leaves in a vain attempt to cover their shame would be invited to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ that people would encounter a community robed in a righteousness not their own and living an authentic, heavenly identity together and thereby see a small glimpse of heaven itself. I want you to know this is at the heart of my hopes for this church. That as we gaze into the mirror of God's word week by week, that we would be compelled to take stock. To take stock not only of the shortcomings we see in our own lives, but of the sufficiency and the beauty and the grace that we receive from Jesus. And having known that grace for our failures, that we would be changed together for God's glory and for the sake of the world. Because that is a story we tell week by week at this table. That our God stepped into our brokenness and he clothed us with what we could never put on ourselves. The scriptures tell us that through this sacrifice, when Jesus allowed his body to be broken, so we take bread to remember. And he allowed his blood to be shed, and we dip it in wine to remember. At that moment, Jesus offered his righteousness in place of our unrighteousness, so that we could be clothed with the garments of heaven. And if that is your story, we come to a meal of gratitude. And I want to invite you to it in just a moment. I also recognize you might be sitting here and thinking, I don't know if I've been clothed in Christ's righteousness. Our prayer teams would love nothing more than to discuss that with you. But they're also there to pray about anything. Maybe you came in with a lament, a concern. Maybe you came in with a praise. They want to pray with you and help you to set your mind and set your heart on things above as we collectively pursue Jesus together. Can I pray for us? God, as we come to this table in just a moment, we recognize that so often, if we take the time to allow the word of God to be a mirror into our own lives, what we see there does not reflect what you have declared true about us. We often choose to put on things that you have told us to put off. And so, Lord, we repent of living out of identities that are not the ones that you've given us. Would you, by your spirit, give us all we need to walk in newness of life? Would you give us, by your spirit, all we need to believe and live out of what you have declared true about us? We thank you, God, that despite our shortcomings, you declare us holy and dearly loved. May we believe it and may it change us. For your name's sake and your glory. Amen. Let's continue in our worship.